Well, this morning, are you feeling fired up? (laughs) A few of you, praise God. (laughs) Praise God. Do you have what it takes? Do you have the energy, the fire, the wisdom, and the worth ethic to do all the things that this life is requiring of you? Do you have enough patience, enough endurance, enough strength, enough peace, and joy? Do you know that you have enough power to accomplish the things that you're called to? This is actually one of the things that sets all the best sports movies apart. I don't know if you've watched any good sports movies lately, whether it's Rudy or Remember the Titans, Rocky or The Karate Kid, Field of Dreams, A League of Their Own. In all of these movies, there's one central theme that you could trace that pretty much sets all sports movies apart, and that's this. In some way or another, every great sports movie is about overcoming the odds. They're down by so many. It's halftime. The coach walks into the locker room, and he does what? He fires them up so that they have the endurance, the stamina, the power, and the zeal to go out and get it done. See, great sports movies are not just about any odds. It's about the odds of being an underdog, of being the player or the team that's least likely to win. The thing that makes a great sports movie is the ability to rise above, to come back from way down, to beat the odds, and show that you really do have what it takes to conquer the mightiest of foes. But sports movies in real life rarely go hand in hand. That's why true stories like Miracle, about America winning the hockey championship in the Olympics, or We Are Marshall, or The Blind Side were so popular. But again, let me ask you, because we're not all here on the gridiron with our helmets and shoulder pads on. Do you have what it takes? Do you have the power you need to accomplish the battles of life? Not on the court, but in the everyday fight here and now. After all, if you're a Christian, this is something that we must wrestle with and consider. And if you're here and you wouldn't consider yourself a Christian, we are glad that you're here. And I would argue that this question is something that you need to wrestle with this morning as well. This is the third sermon in our series as we are taking up the book of Acts. If you've been here, you'll remember that this book, which is often called the Acts of the Apostles, could better be titled the Acts of the Risen Lord Jesus through the Apostles. Because as we've seen so far, this book is is all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus and what He continues to do on earth even after he rises from the dead and ascends into heaven. And one of the things that should catch us off guard, that's more astonishing than any sports movies, and I'm pretty sure it's the last sports ball reference I'll make in the sermon for all you non-sports ball fans. What should be astonishing to us about the book of Acts is the setup of the mission and the team that will accomplish it. See, as we saw way back in Acts 1.8, that you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now that is a mission. That mission of this small band of brothers 
that they are to be witnesses, to testify, to make known the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ to the entire known world. And what does Luke follow up that mission by telling us? Well, we looked at it last week, that this same band of brothers that Jesus handpicked during his earthly ministry, it's mostly made up of fishermen, tax collectors, and other normal guys. Here are these men who are called to display how glorious Jesus is to the known world, and there's nothing special about them at all. In fact, one of them was the one who betrayed Jesus. And when it came time to pick his replacement, they had to cast lots and ask Jesus, who is seated in heaven, to show them which one is best. They can't even come up with leadership development skills. Just a bunch of normal guys with normal jobs. And yet, this is the key to understanding really the entire book of Acts. They do it. This is why it's better known as the Acts of Jesus rather than the Apostles. Because as we come to our text today, we are reminded of where the power to accomplish God's mission truly comes from. Or to ask the question the text answers. Why is it that the followers of Jesus are the most, most ethnically diverse community in the world that continues to this day? Why? Why is Christianity so different than anything else in the world? If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to Acts 2 this morning. We'll look at the first 13 verses. As always, if you don't have a Bible of your own, we'd love for you to make use of the Bible there in the pew back in front of you. Acts 2 is on page 855. When you get there, if you're new to the Bible, just look for that big number 2, and I'll begin reading there in just a moment. And as always, if you don't have a Bible of your own, You've come to the right place this morning. We have free Bibles. We would love to give you one. Uh, they're on the table in the back with some other free resources that you can make use of today. Well, friends, let me invite you to stand once more for the reading of God's Word today from Acts 2. This is the Word of the Lord to us today. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all of these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own, our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mocking said, They are filled with new wine. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. You may be seated. Now coming to this 
passage this morning and coming to this sermon, I wanted to set it up in the way I did and asking kind of those prodding questions at the beginning is because as we come to this passage and began to explore this Holy Spirit and who He is and what He does, I'm not really interested as your pastor in some heady theological lecture about the Holy Spirit. Now, for sure, there's going to be a lot of good heavy truths in these sermons throughout the book of Acts, but, but I'm not interested in giving you some kind of theology lecture about the Holy Spirit. I want us to think as a church, what does this passage mean for Christians, for our faith, and for who God is, and who we are called to be in light of it? And I'm interested in understanding the Holy Spirit and then seeing how who He is changes the hope that we have today in God. Put it simply, I'm interested in, in these sermons in helping you to come to know and love God all the more this morning. And I think we can get at this by looking at three things that this text holds out for us today, all centered around the Spirit. We're going to see the hope of the Spirit. And you see this in verses 1 and 2, the hope of the Spirit. Two, we're going to see the power of the Spirit in verses 3 and 4. And then in verses 5 through 13, we're going to see the work of the Spirit. The hope of the Spirit, the power of the Spirit, and the work of the Spirit. And my prayer as we explore each one of these is that you would see that if God has truly sent power from on high to accomplish the mission of bringing glory to Himself, if God has really done that, if that's all true, then my prayer is that we would come to trust Him to give us all the power we need to accomplish the work that He's called us to today as well. So let's prayerfully move in that direction. The hope of the Spirit. We really see this taking place in verses 1 and 2, and there's a lot kind of built into what Luke gives us here. Unfortunately, we're not like Theophilus, the, the person who received this letter. We're not like the early church who, who, who read this story. We don't necessarily hear all of the echoes in what Luke is saying. So we need to take some time and actually look at these verses and explore what's going on. So we get back into the story of what Jesus is now doing from heaven. We find that we have a new setting. The last chapter ends with Jesus' apostles praying and asking Him to choose from among themselves another leader who's going to take the place of Judas as one of the twelve apostles, one of the twelve messengers, the witnesses. And Jesus chooses Matthias. As you can imagine, they're, they're in Jerusalem, still waiting from that power that Jesus promised them back in Acts 1-8 and back in Luke 24-49 where Jesus called it power from on high. So here they are waiting. And looking back at Acts 2, Luke tells us straight away when this is taking place, doesn't he? Look back. It says, when the day of Pentecost arrived. Now I want to stop there for us today. Because like I said, we, when we hear the word Pentecost, most of the time we think about this. We don't actually think about what is Pentecost. Why is it capitalized here? What's going on? What is this time that had arrived called Pentecost? What is it? Well, the day of Pentecost is important. It's why Luke tells us that it's happening, and it's important that it happened on this day. Pentecost is one of the three major feasts and celebrations of the Jewish people. If you read the Old Testament, you find that there are three of them. It was during these feasts, it was expected that every leader of every Jewish household would make a pilgrimage. They would travel to Jerusalem for the time of the feast. Why Jerusalem? Well, it's the city of the king, 
It is the hub. It is God's city. And so they were expected to travel there. So during this time, you would literally have hundreds of thousands of Jews from everywhere gathered in one city and in the outlying areas. You can imagine the population would grow by five or six times what was normally in Jerusalem. You'd have the Feast of Tabernacles in the fall. You'd have the Passover in the spring. And you'd have Pentecost or the Feast of Weeks that takes place in between. Now, Pentecost, the word, means 50 days. You may have guessed that. You count seven weeks of seven days after Passover. Any of you kids doing your multiplication right now? Seven times seven is 49. You guys can work on that this week. 49. And so the next day, day 50, was Pentecost. See, the Passover, you may remember, commemorated the coming of the angel of death the last plague to Egypt when God rescued His people from bondage. It was on that night the Israelites were told to sacrifice a lamb and to spread its blood over their doorpost. And the angel of death coming, seeing the blood, would pass over the Israelite homes, but would inflict destruction on Egypt by taking its firstborn sons. This could have been avoided had Pharaoh and his court listened to Moses and freed Israel But they refused, and so they paid the ultimate price for their sin against God. In the aftermath, the Israelites, having survived because of the blood, the Lamb's blood, leave Egypt. They're let go. It was then that God redeemed them as promised. And so every year they would celebrate the Passover. But what happened after that? Well, it was 50 days later, Israel was at Sinai receiving God's law through Moses. When they entered the land, they were to keep a feast, remembering this day. And this is the day that they were to bring their first fruits, bread made from new grain as an offering to God. And this first fruits offering stood both for the hope of coming into the full harvest and into the new land, and as a sign of thanksgiving to God for His provision. It could only come, though, as a result of God's previous work. Thus, it was this, this festival, this Pentecost, was not just a celebration of, of agriculture. It wasn't just like they had a giant farmer's market every year in Jerusalem. But it was about the redemption of God. Israel offered her first fruits to God because God had saved her from slavery in Egypt. The underlying idea in the symbolism of Pentecost was that if God was able to redeem His people from Egypt... He would be able to provide for their lives too, just as He promised. Now keep that in mind. If God was able to save His people through Passover, then He would keep His promise of providing everything that they needed. And that's what they celebrated at Pentecost. So this celebration or feast was an early summer harvest feast to mark that truth. We'll get back to that in a moment. You can already begin to see that Jerusalem was buzzing during this time. There's lots and lots of people. And the text tells us that the early disciples are here as well, together in one place. Even here we are reminded of how God has seemed to work throughout the generations. That He works most powerfully among those who are unified to Him, devoting themselves to loving Him and loving His people. And so they're there together. And now in this text we see where it all begins. You can imagine them there praying, communing together, 
discussing what they should do next, Luke tells us that suddenly there came from heaven. Suddenly, unexpected, it comes from heaven. And I don't want to skip over that phrase this morning because it's a key phrase to understanding the, the book of Acts in general. Because it's a, this phrase and ones like it that continue to come up throughout the story. But what we find here is that the coming of the Holy Spirit is not just something that just kind of happens. It's not just happenstance. It's not just like the Holy Spirit was over on the other side of the world kicking cans around and all of a sudden says, you know what, I think I'm going to go to Jerusalem now. No. What we find here is that the coming of the Spirit, the coming of this, literally in the Greek, it's, it's violent wind had a place of origin. The Spirit comes from heaven itself. The Spirit was just, not just arriving, but He had been sent. So who exactly is this sent Spirit? And who exactly sent Him? That's where it gets good. Because the very promise Jesus made to His disciples that we read this morning in the call to worship in John 14... It's there that Jesus says He's going to send a helper, a comforter, someone who will come from the Father. He's going to send one who's going to bring them guidance. He's going to bring them joy. And as He promises in Luke 24, power from on high. We find here that the living spiritual Pentecost that they were celebrating in the feast, do we not? That just as God had redeemed His people from Egypt by the blood of the Lamb and then provided His law for them on Mount Sinai so that they would know what to do, in the same way God has provided the sacrificial Lamb in Jesus Christ. And now 50 days later, He's going to send His Holy Spirit who will guide them and direct them and give them insight into everything that they are to do. What are we to make of this? Well, friend, if you're here today and you wouldn't consider yourself a Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ, there's something fundamental to understanding Christianity wrapped up in even this idea that God would send us something or someone from heaven. That that is the way of salvation. Not that we save ourselves and not that we make our own way to God as if we could be ever good enough for a holy God to accept us. No, but to be a Christian, to be a follower of Jesus is to see that all we need to know about God and to live in relationship with God comes from God Himself, from heaven above. This is what Jesus was all about first. He came and He lived a perfect life, a a sinless life, was then arrested and executed as a sinner. Why? So that He could die in our place suffering the penalty of her sin, which is death. But he didn't stay dead, did he? No, in his resurrection from the dead, he showed that sin had been conquered. And now that he has ascended into heaven, he has given every believer his Holy Spirit as the first fruits of heaven, proving his promise that he will come again. Galatians tells us that the Holy Spirit is a down payment the promises of God. Friend, if you'd like to talk more about what it means to follow this God who is three in one, by looking to Christ and repenting of our sin, I'll be in the back after the service. I would love to talk to you more. But Christian, brother or sister, what might you take up from these first couple of verses? Nothing short 
of the fact that Jesus is the great promise-keeping king. It's exactly what the heaven-sent spirit teaches us. We have something new in Jesus' ascension into heaven. We have something that the Old Testament saints could only get a slight glimpse and a slight taste of. We get the Holy Spirit now and always. We have access to God through the Spirit every hour of every day. We can begin to see where we are supposed to get the power we need for the things that we are called to by simply seeing here where the power originates. In heaven, sent by the Son, who is the one who is truly accomplishing the mission of the Father. So let's return to the text this morning. There's there's really so much more. Look back at verse 2. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty, that's the word violent there, a, a violent rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. The final thing that we should see in this verse before we seek to understand who the Spirit is and what His purpose is, is to see how He works a bit here. We find here the truth that Jesus Himself holds out for us in, in John 3. Remember, he's, he's answering the questions from Nicodemus about, about this idea of, of being born again and, and how can a man enter into his mother's womb to be born again. And Jesus says, that's, that's not the born again I'm talking about. I'm not talking about earthly, biologically being born again. I'm talking about spiritually being born again. And how does spiritual regeneration, being born again, happen? Through the Holy Spirit. And so what does Jesus end by saying? He says, the wind blows where it wishes. And you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Or to say it another way, when the Spirit moves, it's like the wind, uncontrollable and powerful and able to make His presence known. You can imagine their robes whipped around them, their hair blue, and they had to shield their eyes from the dust. Something was taking place. How did the apostles feel when the heavens began to roar so loudly that the sound attracted a vast multitude of others in Jerusalem? I I grew up in North Carolina, but my wife, she grew up in California. She experienced an earthquake or two. I've heard that they're, they're, they're a bit scary because the whole ground begins to shake. It sounds like a locomotive is coming through your living room, and that's what we find here. Surely there were some involuntary gasp and cries of surprise in the upper room. So what happens next? Well, let's look at verses 3 and 4 and see the power now of the Spirit. Look back at the text, picking up verse 3. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now what's up with the fire and the resting of the tongues? Let's hang on to the tongues. We'll get to that in a minute. But there's something significant wrapped up in this fire idea resting upon them. Now, most of us read that and we think, well, that's, they, it, it almost feels like this ancient kind of scene, right? There's almost this otherworldliness to it. And it, it's, it's hard for us to imagine. It's like, why did God do that? Why did he bring the fire down? If you saw me and there was fire coming down on me, I, one of you would tackle me and try to stop, drop, and roll. But, but it says fire comes down. It's divided, looking like flaming tongues on all of them. Not just one of them, but all of them, the fire comes down. Well, as it turns out, fire is something we see come up over and over again in the Bible. 
And it always means one thing. The meeting place of God and man. See it first in the burning bush with Moses. In Exodus 3, Moses is in the desert. He comes across this burning bush and it's not being consumed. It's from that bush that God speaks to him. God continues this fire-led ministry as He takes the people of Israel out of Egypt, leading them cloud by day and what by night? By fire from heaven. And was it not upon Mount Sinai where Moses would meet with God that fire would rain down causing the people to fear and tremble and His glory and His presence? We find later in the tabernacle it's erected that this pillar of fire would come down upon the mercy seat It's where the high priest would go and he would meet with God. And later, when Solomon builds the temple, we read about this in 1 Kings, that the fire literally leaves the tabernacle and goes over to the temple. Why? Because God's presence is now there. As you read through the prophets, this happens over and over and over again. Until finally, we find in Ezekiel that the fire lifts up and it's gone. God removes His presence, at least in that way, because of their ongoing rebellion. And so where is the fiery presence of the Lord now? Where has it gone? Friends, do you see what's happening here in Acts 2? Something altogether amazing, but also altogether biblical. It teaches us now, where fire falls, there the Lord is. And when fire is present and God is moving, the fire represents the very place where God and man meet. Verse 3 tells us that the fire rested upon the heads of the disciples. It rested. It comes and it stops. Meaning that God had come to stay. This is why just as the house was filled with the wind, so the people here are filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, we find here something, that, that in a, a significant change in the way that God is doing things. Those shadows and those promises and those prophecies of the Old Testament unfold in dramatic fashion as the disciples receive the Holy Spirit, who's now going to empower them to speak the gospel of the risen Christ for the first time. This was something that Old Testament prophecies only skimmed the surface of. Here's just a few. In, in Isaiah 59, 20 and 21, it says there, The Redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who repent of their sins, declares the Lord. As for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit who is on you and my words I have put in your mouth will not depart from your mouth and from the mouths of your children and from the mouths of their descendants from this time on and forever, says the Lord. Ezekiel 39, 29, I will no longer hide my face from them, For I will pour out my spirit on the house of Israel, declares the sovereign Lord. And then probably the most impactful from Joel 2, 28 through 30. And afterward, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. I will show wonders in the heavens and on earth, blood and fire and billows of smoke. Friends, what do these teach us? What do these prophecies, and there's so many more like them in the Old Testament, teach us? 
They teach us that God is doing a new thing here. God is doing something altogether new. He's bringing in a new era, pouring out the fruit of His new covenant. He was giving them Himself in a new way, in a way that would never leave them and change them forever. This is why Paul picks up this idea in Romans 8, 23 and tells us that we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons and the redemption of our bodies. Just like Jesus comes and, and He explodes everything that they thought that the, that the coming Messiah King would be. They had all these prophecies that Jesus comes and blows them up out of the water. In the same way the Spirit now comes and He blows up those Old Testament prophecies and makes it so much more glorious than they could have ever ex expressed. And this experience, the resting of the Spirit and the way that He moves, changes the very way early Christians talked about God. I mean, do you realize that? That this is where our Trinitarian theology, the, the idea of the Trinity, God, three in one, begins to develop all the more and become more robust. Now, I realize that we may have some various views on the Holy Spirit. If I were to go around and ask all of you, we could come up with quite a few different views on who the Holy Spirit is and what the Holy Spirit does and how He moves today and whether or not He does things like this or not. We get into all of that. Some of you who aren't Christians may be wondering what this talk about the Spirit coming and resting upon us or inside of us is all about. Maybe you're cool about thinking about God the Father there. He's sovereign. He's directing our affairs. There's Jesus. He comes and He loves us and He gives Himself up for us and He's going to come again and give us new heavens and new earth. And then we start talking about the Spirit and you're like, what is going on? This spirit inside of us? Like, is it some weird, like, Patrick Swayze and ghosts? Like, what, what's going on there? Like, what does that look like? That was a callback. If you haven't seen that movie, you're missing out. What is this Holy Spirit all about? If some of you grew up in churches where the Spirit of God was rarely spoken about or, or considered a part of the uh, essentials of the Christian life. Nobody ever talked about the Spirit. And when they did, it was just because they were bad-mouthing the Pentecostals down the street. Others of you grew up in churches where every experience was attributed to the Spirit at work, as if He were some kind of puppet master. And still others were raised in churches where the word Pentecostal became associated with certain signs and wonders. Unfortunately, as we look at this text today and the ongoing work of the Spirit throughout the book of Acts, I think in, in, in all of those situations we have missed the great need for Christians today to experience the real Spirit of God. Not in some bizarre way, but in a way that conforms to Scripture and allows the Spirit to do the work that He was always intended to do. Newsflash, the mission and the goal of the Holy Spirit has not changed from Acts. It doesn't matter what you think about the gifts today and how the Spirit moves today. His mission and His goal has not changed. It's always been one thing to make Christ known. The Spirit's mission is to make much of Christ, to build a global gathering of witnesses to who He is. And that's where so many of us fall into the traps of this world. This is where passages like this one get so practical. Because many of us struggle with, with our priorities, letting ourselves slip 
continuing to wrestle through the same things, falling into worldliness, feeling worn down, exhausted, and burnt out. And when I ask questions like, do you have what it takes to do the things of life? You almost burst into tears because you feel the weight of it. The truth is we're burnt out. And that's because we have missed two fundamental truths we find presented throughout this passage and throughout the book of Acts as a whole. What the mission is and who will accomplish it. The mission for the Christian is singular. It has many outworkings. It has many different ways of happening. But the mission has not changed. What is the mission of the Christian? It is to make disciples. That's it. To make disciples is to be His witnesses through all the world. We are called to be His representatives, to to be a part of His kingdom building. It is to celebrate and display the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ. And for that mission, there has always and forever only been one way to accomplish it. As we see here, it is through the power of of the Holy Spirit coming upon us. Now, it certainly may not look like what we see here in Acts 2. In fact, we see that this this massive pouring out of the Spirit, it's not a constant thing, but it's a thing that happens from time to time throughout history. This is why you have massive revivals in nations. This is why you have the Great Awakening. It's not even constant in the book of Acts. But what about us for in the day today? Can we receive power from on high? Absolutely. And we should want it. We should ask for it. We should depend upon it. See, what I'm getting at is that so many of us struggle because our mission is wrong. Instead of glorifying God through being witnesses to Jesus and making disciples for the kingdom, we are focused on ourselves, on having the best job, on having our lives be at peace, on having a perfectly obedient children, on having the best friendships that we can find, or the best health. Instead of focusing on what Jesus has told us to do, we've focused on the benefits of knowing Him. We have traded doing God's mission for the blessings that God has given us. And then, in that, we ignore the power of the Spirit. We spend our own energies, our own strength, and our own wisdom trying to navigate life. We try to do things ourselves. We try to manipulate. We try to fight. We try to conjure up some secret sauce to score the game-winning shot in the last second. Last sports reference, I promise. It doesn't work, does it? We fall apart. We start dropping off the map. We feel like a failure. Children, this, this morning in Sunday school, if you were here, you, you learned about the two brothers, right? We all fall into those kind of camps where we think, if I'm just good enough and I just work hard enough, then I'll be accepted. Or, I don't want anything to do with this guy, so I'm just going to leave and go do my own thing. And some of you children, you feel that way with your parents, your Sunday school teachers, other teachers that you have. That's not the gospel. The gospel held out here, the beauty of Jesus is that He lavishes us with His grace and then He calls us to be about His glory. And the promise here is that Jesus never calls us to do something that He's then not going to provide for us in. 
It's exactly what we see borne out here in brilliant color. Friend, let me just encourage you in this way. If Jesus is willing to fulfill his promise here in such a mighty way, why is it that we have such a hard time trusting him to keep his promises in the small day-to-day things of our lives? If Jesus would send his spirit so mightily and powerfully here, why is it that we don't expect that he will provide for our spiritual needs? Friends, Jesus is a good Savior to send us the Spirit to work and accomplish God's will in us, around us, and through us. This is exactly what we find in the final portion of the passage. So we look at the final thing here, and that is the work of the Spirit. Look back at the passage. Consider verse 5. Verse 4 tells us, And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. We see that whatever was happening, it was the Spirit who was doing it. But what are these tongues? What is this all about? As we continue, this is what we're told. Now, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all of these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each one of us in our own native language. Now there's a few things to notice here as we consider what exactly the work of the Spirit is. First, just to make clear, this idea of tongues here is not speaking of some heavenly language or something that needed an interpreter. We know that because the people who are there hear their language and they understand. The understanding of tongues In that sense, the heavenly language, like we see Paul talking about in 1 Corinthians, is different than this. We'll save that sermon for another day. We'll get to 1 Corinthians eventually. Stick with us. We're talking about different kind of tongues here. In fact, later on in verse 7, it's the exact same word, but it's translated as language. And that's exactly what we have. We have these people from all over the known world, 16 different places that are mentioned there. And yet they are all hearing the apostles speaking in their own language. Friends, let me ask you this. What is the first act of the coming Spirit? That they would be His witnesses. And so the first act of the Holy Spirit is to help them communicate. And who exactly were they speaking to? That's what the glorious merger of the mission is. See, while it's, it's all of these men who come from every nation under heaven, literally come from every ethnos. It's where we get our word ethnicity, right? It's from every nation, from every ethnicity under heaven. This is not the end of the earth, like you may think. You might think when you read this, oh man, the Holy Spirit's accomplishing the mission to go to the ends of the earth right in chapter 2. No, that's not what's happening. Verse 5 tells us who these men are. It's the very reason that they're all here for this Pentecostal feast. While these people are multicultural, they are not multi-religious or coming from multi-faiths. These are Jews. These are those who have devoted themselves to God. This is why the Spirit coming at Pentecost makes so much sense. Because it was the feast that was most attended. Out of the three... 
Pentecost was the most attended because of the time of year that it was. It made traveling conditions the best. And so he comes to the feast that is most attended. And Jesus is able to reach all Jerusalem's people who had been scattered over the centuries and to bring them in. Which is exactly what Pentecost was all about. See, it was, it was not just known as the Feast of Weeks. It was also known as the Feast of Ingathering. It was the Feast of Harvest. And friends, we'll never have a better example of Jesus' teaching here that the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. We always read that passage and think of it in a negative sense, right? Well, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few, man. we got to get out there. We need some more workers. But here we see that Jesus from heaven sending His Spirit can reach the harvest through just a few. As those few workers spoke, we see the response of the people with pure amazement. Do you notice all the different ways it speaks about their response? In verse 6, it says, they're bewildered. What? What is going on? Verse 7, it says that they were amazed and astonished. Verse 12 says again that they were amazed and perplexed. Next week, we'll see how Peter responds to all of this with the first Christian sermon. But it's good enough for us today to close by simply thinking about the two responses we are given to the work of the Spirit here in those final two verses. Some hear it and receive it, and others laugh it off as if these men are drunk. Friends, what do we take away from this? If we are living in a different time and the Spirit is not at work in such an exuberant way as we see here, what are we to do? First, we should pray for it. Every mighty move of the Spirit throughout Christian history has been preceded by God's people praying. We should pray for the Spirit to be at work among us. And second, we should march forward expecting that He will be. See, what is so surprising to me about the book of Acts is that even right here, everything changes. As we're going to come to see, there is this new confidence, a zeal, a work ethic that from this point on marks the followers of Jesus. We're going to see next week, Peter just gets up and he starts going. Peter, who had just denied Christ. Peter, who's always struggling with putting his foot in his mouth. Remember, Jesus told him on the shore, Peter, feed my sheep. And now we're going to see him do it. In the face of persecution, of new movements, of liars and deceivers, a shipwreck, a snake bite, on and on and all of these things. What do we find the followers of God doing in the book of Acts? Getting after it. Going forward. Doing hard things. As it says in Acts 4.13, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. In some ways, the same calls upon each one of us, isn't it? Is this not what Paul gets at in Ephesians 5 with his command about how the Spirit should mark out the people of God? He says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. 
addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Friends, there's so much more to be discovered in this passage. and We don't have time to get into it all today, but I want to close our time today by considering four things that we can take away. Number one, the outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost means the gospel is unleashed from power on high. Prior to Pentecost, the gospel was confined to this small cultural and geographic corner of the world. But with the Spirit's coming, the gospel has gone forth everywhere, as 1 Thessalonians says. Paul could state that the gospel has gone out to the whole world and is bearing fruit and increasing in Colossians 1. Because of the outpoured Spirit of God, we now who live in distant lands from the original church have heard and we've believed. We have mighty confidence in God for the success of the gospel among those who have still not heard of its saving message. Friends, you want to know why we can have confidence in missions? Why we can go to places that have never heard while we can give of our money and our time and our energy and our prayers because the Spirit, because He's come and He's at work. Number two, at Pentecost, Christ sent the Spirit to advance His saving ministry with great power. It may sound like the first one, but here's how it's different. Paul makes this stunning statement in 2 Corinthians 3.17. Now the Lord is the Spirit. The point is not to flatten God And somehow the Father and the Son got compacted into the Spirit. No, that's not what Paul's saying. But he shows us that salvation which Christ has achieved is what the Spirit is all about. It was for this reason that Jesus told His disciples in John 16, It is to your advantage that I go away. Now Christ lives and moves in His people by the indwelling of the Spirit. The Spirit comes that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. What a joyous realization that by His Spirit, Christ lives in us. I mean, think about how that changes our prayers. How that changes walking through trials and suffering and, and, and our confusion and questions that we have about situations in our life that we don't know how to work through. That you may be filled with the fullness of God. That's what the Spirit has come for. Number three, after Pentecost, the Spirit is at work convicting sinners and regenerating their hearts to believe. Jesus taught of the Spirit in John 16 again. When He comes, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Friend, if if you're here today and you are not a Christian, this is our desire for you. It is to receive the work of the Spirit that He would come. We've prayed for you and asked that God, the Spirit, would come inside your hearts and enliven them to new life. To convict you of your sin that you may turn and repent and turn to God. Because this is not something I can do. This is not something anyone sitting in this room can do. It is the Spirit that brings salvation. It is the Spirit that gives us new hearts. And it is the Spirit that draws us to repentance. Number four, because the Spirit's coming, believers can and will be transformed into the glorious image of Christ. It's a promise. 
Whereas Moses would depart from the presence of God, come down from the mountain, he would have that Shekinah glory, and over time it would fade away. It's not the same for us. When the Spirit has come upon us, well, some of us feel like we don't shine very much. doesn't mean we don't have the Spirit. But He's within us, working. So Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.18 that Christians beholding the glory of God are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Friend, how's your transformation coming along? The Spirit's here to do that work. Let me give you one more. Five. Did I say four? I have five. Finally, by the sending of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, Christ has glorified Himself in the world. It's exactly what Acts is about, exactly what we're about. Jesus told His disciples, when the Spirit of truth comes, He will glorify Me, and He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. Through God's Word, believers in Christ, behold the glory of Jesus, seeing the Gospel, which Paul calls in 2 Corinthians the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's a mouthful. But it's good. Even the unbelieving world, which would never have known or cared about this crucified Jew named Jesus, has had His glory revealed in the lives and witness of Christ's Spirit-led people. Do you see that? If it were not for the work of the Spirit, Roanoke, Virginia would be completely unreached. There would be no churches and no Christians. Friends, I don't... Well, I do care, but I'll say it this way. I don't much care about your view of the, the spiritual gifts and how the Holy Spirit is moving or not moving in today's world. The reality is we are living in the age of the Spirit and thus able to speak God's truth with grace and truth in the Spirit of this age. We are held fast by the Spirit until the time when Christ returns. We are given the fruit of the Spirit to grow into looking more and more like our precious Savior. So if you are looking for power today, if you're in need of strength, if you're in need of wisdom, if you feel like your life needs to be transformed, revived, or renewed for the glory of God, friend, look no further than the Spirit of God, sent by Christ to provide us with all we need to be His witnesses both near and far. Let us pray. Father, we come to you praying and asking. Lord, that you would do a work that only you can. Lord, we pray and we ask for your spirit to come and work among us even now as we prepare to take this meal. That you would work in such a way that there would be no question, there would be no accusation of man-made manipulation. That there would be no wondering if you are at work, Lord, but that you would come, that you would redeem and give new life, 
Lord, I pray over those Christians here who are struggling that they would be full of the Spirit and walking in newness of life. And for those who are here who do not know You, Lord, we pray and we ask that Your Spirit would work in their hearts even now and draw them to Yourself. We ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen.